All right, well, I uh, apologize for the confusion, but we will have the little guys with us today. I, I remember um, having someone visit the church, and um, initially they were a little bit disturbed by some of the noise that children caused, uh, wanting just a perfect environment and a perfect setting. And then uh, after a few weeks, they said, you know what? That's okay if a clipboard drops because these children are in and paying attention to the Word and uh, it's applicable for them and you would be amazed at how much they learn. And the parents can probably attest to that. So, if it's a little noisier today, that is okay. Alright? Well, I want to begin my message today with a little exercise. I want to show you a picture on the overhead here and I want you to tell me what it is. Maybe you can, maybe you can guess. So, we have Adriana, the first picture. Here we go. First picture. Do you know what this is? Anybody? <laughs> I thought it going to be hard. Alright, go ahead. We, there we have the Statue of Liberty. Man, you guys are good. And um, Okay, I have another picture for you. If you get this one, I will be very, very impressed. Okay, let's go to the next one here. <clears throat> that one. Spider leg? No. It's a what? A what? Cat's tail. No, it's a good guess. Mouse tail. Rat's tail. No, not a rat's tail. Kind of looks... It's what? A honeybee stinger? We're getting close. Okay, go ahead, Adriana. Go to the next slide. Here's what it is. It's an antenna of of an ant. All right, and then here's a big picture now. Let's go to the next one. All right, if you get this one, I'll be be very impressed. It's what? Modern art. That's right. That's right. It's what? It's an eye? No, it's not an eye. That's a good guess, though. looks like an eye. Okay, we got something in space recommended. We have, what is it, Ethan? The sun? No, it's not the sun, but you're close. Let's go, Adriana. Not cl- go ahead, Adriana. Next one. What is this? It's the moon. All right, one more. This is, this is great. Okay, we got one last one. What's this one? It's a clock, but it, the, the clock is in a special place, though. Some of you may know this. It's, it's not just any clock. You know, like Big Ben? We say, oh, that was Big... This isn't Big Ben. But Big Ben, we can see... We know what that is. Right, that's the big clock in London. We see it? Huh? It's Wrigley Field. Go ahead and span out. There we go. Wrigley Field. And we got one more. All right. There was a Wrigley Field. Well, I show you those pictures as an illustration of what we are trying to do in our sermon series here at Rock Valley Bible Church. When you see the whole the parts become clear. And there are times when you're so focused on the parts that you miss the whole. And for the past few months at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've sent, spent our Sunday mornings seeing the whole, surveying the whole scope of Bible history. Twelve weeks for the entire thing. Um, my aim has been really to catch the whole, the parts might become clearer. In a few weeks, I think it's by mid-September, we'll start the book of Hebrews looking at the parts, but the parts will make sense because the whole is there. We'll look at the book of Hebrews digging deep verse by verse, but right now we're, we're doing the flyover. Rockford Air Fest is this weekend. I've heard some planes around our house. That's what we are doing. We have looked at the history of the Bible in 12 stages. We began with Genesis and the creation stage. Creation, fall, and the flood. We then moved on to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then look to the Exodus. See how God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt. Next we went to Joshua and the conquest. And then Judges and the dark ages of the Bible. We looked then at the kingdom stage. 
of the Bible followed by the exile into Babylon and return. Last week we looked at the the silence period, the the period between the Testaments from Malachi to Matthew, that which biblical revelation is mostly quiet upon. And now this morning we come to the stage that's been identified as gospel. It's talking about the life of Jesus. And it's been the custom for, let's see, nine weeks in a row now we have sung this little song. And I want to sing it again. You ready? Twelve stages in the Bible. Let's learn. I hope you learned. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, da silence, gospel. Church and mission. You're very impressive. That was very good. I'll, I'll give you an applause for that. That was good. I thought that a lot of you would be, whoa, I don't know this. But it shows you what a little repetition can do. It's how you memorize things. You just repeat it again and again. You sing it or you say it over and over and over again. Uh, if you can memorize this, I know that we have a CD on the back table of the 12 stages which give you songs to sing through the kings and the judges and the prophets. And uh, many, many different things up here just associated with all these stages. Well, we are in the Gospel stage. We're looking this morning at the life of Jesus. Uh, you know, every time we've looked at you know, the creation stage, like several thousand years, we looked at the period of patriarchs, several hundred years. And then the Exodus was, was several, I don't know, 50, 60 years we looked at. And then we looked at the, the conquest. And every time taking a big swoop of history, now we're looking at the life of Jesus from beginning until end. In the Bible, there are four books that tell the story of Jesus. There's a Gospel according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and what's the fourth one again? John. And uh, each of these books tell the life of Jesus. They tell of His ministry. They tell of His miracles. They tell of His teaching. They tell of His disciples. They culminate, all of them do, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It would be a mistake for you to think that all of these different accounts have to be harmonized in order for us to understand the life of Jesus. You can harmonize them, that's okay. There are purposes in that. But you need to realize each of these Gospel accounts are complete in and of themselves. Each writer has his own different agenda. For instance, the Gospel of John is decidedly evangelistic. It says in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, Many things could have been written, but these things have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. It's evangelistic. I want to tell you, the stories I've selected have been selective, but they've they've been chosen so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and then have life in His name. Luke is factual and historic. He says at the beginning of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, Dr. Luke writes, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. In other words, Luke says this, many people have written and seen about the life of Christ, but I've kind of gathered them all together, done a massive research project so, Theophilus, you can know the exact truth of everything that was said. The Gospel of Matthew is decidedly Jewish. As you read through there, there are many, many times where, where the, the Gospel writer Matthew says that this was done so as to fulfill the Scripture. And Scripture abounds probably more in Matthew than in any other Gospel because 
Matthew's burden was to the Jewish people who accepted the Scriptures and he wanted to show them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was better than the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the Gospel of Mark is written for the Gentiles. Some quotations of Scripture, but fewer. Not a lot. The miracles are many, showing the compassion of Jesus. But above all, Mark is concerned to show that Jesus is a servant who has come to save And in our time this morning, what I want to do is just pick one Gospel and go through it. And I've chosen the Gospel of Mark for us to go through this morning. It's the shortest of all Gospel accounts, which you know in my series of sermons, this will help me because there's been so much material. I told Yvonne I'm looking forward to getting back verse by verse where we can kind of dig rather than just skipping over so much. But that's our aim. We're going to deal with the whole Gospel of Mark. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark if you're not there. Um... I want to start right in the middle of Mark because that sets the tone for the whole thing. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. How we turn there and start there, we're really going to launch from this verse, a jumping point. Mark 10:45 is a verse many of you know of memorized. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus here is talking about Himself. He is the Son of Man. He used that reference often to refer to Himself. In fact, more than a dozen times here in the Gospel of Mark, He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. And He says about Himself what I've come to do. It's a good summary. He says He came to serve and He came to ransom. It's His twofold task of His ministry. Jesus had every right to be served. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, every king has a right to be served. It is right that our president has a big 747 jumbo jet that is completely at his disposal to do with whatever he wants because we need to serve him. It is right for our president to have his own cooks and maids and secretaries and helpers so that he might set his task to be the ruler of the country, to free him up, to do whatever He can do so He can rule well. And so likewise, Jesus, God incarnate, King of kings, Lord of lords, had every right to be served. There will be a day when He is served. Right now, the Bible says He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for His enemies to be at a footstool for His feet. And that day, Jesus will be served as King. But during His time upon the earth, He said He forsook that. He didn't come to be served as much as He could have demanded that. Rather, He came, as He said, to to show His true greatness. He came to serve. He served us in many ways. He taught us and fed us and healed us. But the ultimate way that Jesus served us was by giving His life for us. Anytime you serve somebody, you're sacrificing something. And when you make the ultimate sacrifice of yourself, you're sacrificing it all. And that's what Jesus did. He gave His life as a ransom for many. We know what that means. It means He laid down His life, giving it over to His enemies so as to die upon the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So we might believe in Him, as the Gospel of John writes even, and have life in His name. Because He died, we live. It's the greatest life of service you can give. Greater love is no one than this. They lays down His life for His friends. As we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we are, we are going toward His death. As you all know, all the Gospel accounts finish with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it is appropriate as we finish our service this morning, we're going to finish it celebrating the Lord's Supper today. It's for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And my whole message today is a reminder again of what's, what the life of Jesus was like as He went to Calvary. 
It's something we've done, the Lord's Supper, so often. In fact, Jesus said, do this and remember it to me. He tells us to remember Him. There's something about us that tends to forget. And so it's so easy to go through the motions. Yeah, I know about it. I've thought upon Christ many times before, but my, my charge to you and my prayer for you is that God would grant you all strength to celebrate the Supper today in new freshness. Having reflected upon the life of Jesus from beginning to end, you might be thankful to Him. You might see how in control He was, how He, he died for us. But if you're familiar with the Lord's Supper account, you're also familiar with the life of Jesus as well. I, I think in my preaching this morning, everything I say will probably be familiar to most of you. You've heard it before. You've heard the stories. You've read them. You've told them to the kids. But, but I, I urge you this morning to hear it fresh. Marvel at Jesus. Marvel at His power and authority. Marvel at His compassion. Marvel at His willingness to die and rejoice that He served us and that He saved us. In fact, that's such my burden. I want, I want to pray that God would stir our hearts that we would come freshly again to the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that You would give us a freshness in the text today. I pray that there would be a um, new insights perhaps that we've seen, maybe nuances of the life of Jesus we've never seen before, or perhaps, Lord, and I, I trust this will be the most, is that the simple story, reminded again, would come powerful to our hearts. We have the Bible here as a, as a purpose to, to read it again and again and again, and to hear it again and again and again, and I pray it would do its effect once more in our life. I pray that we would treasure Jesus more at the end of my message than we do right now because we see Him again and afresh. He is the reason why we gather here today, Lord. And so I pray that You'd help us in these things. Pray for Your power. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come and teach us. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the points of my message this morning are going to be taken from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We're going to look here how it says that Jesus served us and how Jesus saved us. Because that's how the book of Mark breaks down. The first half of the Gospel you see Jesus serving us. And the second half of the Gospel you see Jesus saving us. He serves us by, serves the people, by healing them, training them, teaching them, caring for them, feeding them. He saves His people by living perfectly, offering self as a sacrifice and raising from the dead. So He's serving us. He's saving us. My first point, Jesus the servant. Turn back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark begins with these words. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How appropriate is it for us to look at the Gospel stage when the Gospel of Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. Gospel means good news. And indeed, my message this morning is a message of good news because we're looking at the life of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of every stage of the Scriptures we have. And as we went through them, I tried to to show you how how they're all anticipating and pointing to Jesus. You remember in the creation stage, as soon as man fell, God promised of a seed of the woman that would arise that would crush Satan. And that was Jesus. He was the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, which was repeated to Isaac and Jacob. Fulfilled in Jesus. What the Exodus pictured in the redemption is fully realized in Jesus, our true redemption. 
When Joshua conquered, he conquered an earthly kingdom, but Jesus is the conqueror of a heavenly kingdom. The book of Judges is filled with the sinfulness of man and how Judges rose up to save, but Jesus is the great Savior. Jesus is the true King. All the kings of the kingdoms, right? whether it be in the north or south, or wicked or bad, they all point into the true King that we need, Jesus Christ. The exile pictures those who go away because of their sin and need repentance then to bring them back. And we don't come back into a land. We come back to Jesus. And even the silence period, we saw last week, there was, there was this anticipation of the Messiah to come. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the good news. Like the culmination of the story. We're, we're, we're peeking at the climax now of the story of the whole Bible. So if anything's good news, the climax is good news, right? Where, where everything's resolved, where we see the, um, the key things come into place and everything else after that kind of wraps things up. This is Gospel. This is good news. In fact, that's the first thing Jesus preached. Look down in chapter 1, verse 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God. There he was. He was preaching the Gospel. He was preaching the good news of God. He was around and He said, here it is, the time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. That's the first public message they brought to the people. John the Baptist had been imprisoned and now it's time for Jesus to arise. And He preached liberty to captives, freedoms to prisoners, and comfort to those who mourn. He said, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. You've been anticipating your Messiah. I'm He. I've brought the Kingdom of God into your midst because I am here among you. There's implications of this now. So repent and turn from your sins and believe in the Gospel. Repentance is what John the Baptist preached. It's the same thing I am preaching. Turn from your sins and follow Me. Believe in the good news of everything that I will tell you. Maybe I maybe my batteries died or something. From that point on, Jesus calls his disciples to be trained to carry out his ministry. You look in chapter one, verse seventeen, he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You ever thought about when Jesus merely said, Follow me? These these disciples, it says in verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. They're out working on their nets, mending their nets. Jesus said, follow me. They said, okay, and left their dad in the boat and went and followed Jesus. You only do that if you're struck by the authority of the man calling. And indeed, that's what Mark chapter 1 is all about. It's all about the authority of Jesus. When He came into the synagogue in verse 21 in Capernaum, he, he, he taught them, and they were amazed, verse 22, at His teaching, for He's teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes didn't teach as one with authority, but Jesus did teach as one with authority. See, the scribes quoted the fathers, but Jesus was different because He quoted the Scriptures and leaned upon His understanding of the Scriptures. That was His authority. He spoke from God, exactly. But further than that, I think that Jesus derived His authority from the Scriptures. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, you see that he, He's constantly referring to the Scriptures and confounding the people because they've not read, they've not thought deeply enough about the Scriptures, but He taught with authority. 
But he healed with authority too. And this was, this was the extent of how much authority he had. Verse 24, there was a man with an unclean spirit who said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions. Chapter 1, verse 26. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. So they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. He was Jesus. He had authority to call His disciples. He had authority in His teaching. He had authority to command unclean spirits and they would go out of Him. And news about Him spread like wildfire. It says in verse 28, Immediately news about Him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So the way it is when something marvelous happens, People start talking about it. You can't stop talking about it. Did you hear what took place in the synagogue this morning? No, what took place? But Jesus of Nazareth, He cast out a demon merely by speaking to it. No, really? Yeah, really? And then the next person goes, Hey, did you hear what happened this morning? No, what happened? Is in the synagogue. What took place in the synagogue? Well, there's a man, Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus. He cast out demons by a word of His power. Really? Wow, something must be... And, and this news about Jesus just spread around and around and around. And there were many, many people then who were coming. If you look at verse 32, it says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Right? They'd heard that the demon-possessed people could be healed. And all the city was gathered at His door, crowded around Jesus. And He healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, and was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And you see His authority Casting out demons. But, but I want you to notice how He's using His authority. This is what makes Jesus great. This is true greatness. Is that Jesus used His authority to serve people. He didn't use His authority for Himself. He didn't use authority to build up Himself or gain power. He used His authority to serve. He taught so as to help people. He cast out demons to help those who were oppressed. He healed those who were sick to help them live better lives. He came to not to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In fact, you even see that He, he didn't want a crowd of people because He came for a purpose. His priorities are mentioned here in verse 35. While it was early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. This is the priority of Jesus' prayer. Even Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray. And so he prayed. Simon and his companions searched for him, and, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus had every opportunity to build a big ministry for himself. Everyone's looking for him. He's the big hero in town. He could build a mega church right there in Capernaum. But he said, it's not for me. I'm not trying to build this thing up now. I've come to preach to spread my message all abroad. Let's go somewhere else to preach. That's what I came for. If he was in Capernaum, he'd probably get stuck just healing people and serving them and helping them, which was good, but preaching took the priority. It's not that he, he didn't do any healings after this. But healings wasn't his priority. Preaching was his priority. Look at verse 39. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. 
I mean, Jesus tried to lay low, if you will. So maybe the point I'm trying to get at. When He cleansed a leper, we see in verse 44 that He said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He said, listen, I've done something great for you, but don't tell anybody. I want to I lay low at this time. I want to be able to go around to the cities and the villages. But there was a problem. If the leper was cleansed, he couldn't stop talking because of, of everything that he experienced. And as he went out, verse 45, he began proclaiming it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. So we see that Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, just propagating, but he's he's wanting it to spread. He's not wanting to build it for himself at this point. You see the heart of Jesus wanting to wanting to serve the people, really. I love how in verse forty one it speaks about his motive behind his healing. It says, With the leper, he was moved with compassion upon this leper. That is Jesus. Moved with compassion he saw this man who was a leper who was an outcast and wanted to heal him and that's why Jesus healed so many sick and so many distressed because he had compassion upon them it's why he healed so many but Jesus had a greater compassion yes he had a compassion for the sick but he had a greater compassion for the sick of soul it was the sick of soul that he really had a heart and a passion for that's why he put preaching over his healing ministry because his preaching ministry would address the sickness of soul, his healing ministry would address the sickness of body. At one point in the ministry of Jesus, there was one who was sick of soul. His name was Levi, and he followed Jesus. And Levi gathered all of his sinning tax gatherer friends, and, and in his big house, he held a party, and Jesus was there. And the Pharisees were grumbling, Oh, this man eats with sinners. And Jesus then explained the situation in chapter 2, verse 17. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I've come to help sinners. I've come to serve them. And ultimately, that was His aim and that was His goal. See, the ministry of Jesus was compassion to sinners. That's what makes Christ lovely. Right? When you sinned, isn't it lovely to come to someone with compassion, ready and willing to forgive? That's what makes Christ so great. In fact, He forgives sin. Chapter 2, verse 10 even speaks about that. That you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to this paralytic, get up and walk. And he walked away. Jesus did the harder that might demonstrate his easier just saying your sins are forgiven is actually accomplished. Jesus Christ can forgive sins. That's why he's so lovely. He's got compassion all over him. He gives us hope. And people loved him. That's why we love him. Because he gives us hope. He is the anchor of our souls. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. That's our hope. That's Jesus because He's compassionate for us. But you know what? Not everyone appreciated the ministry of Jesus. There were some people who did not appreciate the ministry of Jesus. And we start seeing them stirring in chapter 2, questioning how Jesus could forgive sins, and then questioning about they're not fasting, and then arguing about picking grain on the Sabbath. And then here in chapter 3, kind of the culmination of them, Jesus, chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus entered into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. So his, his hand was somehow wrapped up and withered. Had maybe one good hand, had a bad hand. And, and they presented him before Jesus. And, and all the people around there were watching to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. 
the religious leaders were not fans of Jesus. They did not like Jesus. I think he was upsetting the status quo. He was beginning to expose sin and the religious leaders did not like that. And so they tested him. They tried him. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to bring him down. Jesus healed many people and they knew that he could heal. So, so they brought this man with a withered hand to Jesus, put him before Jesus and, and kind of sat back and said, okay, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to heal this man or not? Because today is Saturday. Today is the Sabbath and, and healing a man would be work. And so if he heals him, we can accuse him of work and we can nail him and we can get him and we can capture him and we can put him to death as a Sabbath breaker. Will Jesus heal the man? That's the question. Jesus, knowing the situation, said in verse 3, He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And He said to them, all these scribes and Pharisees around, He says, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? He said, Here's the question, right? On the Sabbath, it is Saturday. Yes, we don't do any work. But is it okay to do good? Is it okay to heal a life? Huh? Is it? Is it okay? And they responded just the same way you responded. Just... They were silent. But they were silent for different reasons, obviously, than you were. They were silent because they wanted to accuse Jesus. They weren't silent because they didn't know the answer to this question. They knew Hosea 6.6 6, that says, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. They knew that God had a heart to show kindness and goodness and help to others rather than just the mere legalities of the law. But they wanted to accuse Jesus. And so after looking around at them with anger, because they were so hardened in their hearts, Jesus was grieved at that. He said to them, man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And here's a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. You can put your box around this verse. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him so as to how they might destroy him. Here's the conflict in the Gospel of Mark, in all the Gospels, the conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is about doing good. He's about helping. He's about serving. He's about doing kindness and goodness. And the Pharisees, the religious righteous, hate Him. And there's this conflict. There's this back and forth. It's Jesus against the religious establishment all the way through the stories. Pharisees went out, says in verse 6, conspired with the Herodians. These are political people with political power, political clout. Maybe they can destroy Jesus. And whenever you see the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes of the day, they're always seeking to destroy Jesus who is upsetting their status quo, who is exposing their sin. They're always trying to find some sort of ground of accusation against them. Like in chapter 2, I mentioned here about uh, fasting. Why aren't you fasting? We need to fast. Or, or you're picking grain on the Sabbath. Why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? Or over here in chapter 3, if you look at verse 22, they're saying, calling him, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Jesus, the reason he's doing this is because he's a demon-possessed man. And all the time, they're trying to just take him down. One time in chapter 7, they, they got on his disciples for not ceremonially washing their hands. At another point, they tried to pin him on a technicality of mosaic rules of divorce, remarriage. They, they tried to trap him regarding the payment of taxes. They tried to trap him with many, many difficult questions like about the resurrection and others. But it didn't deter Jesus. He just went about doing his thing, doing good, 
helping and serving the people. And boy, what a great point of application there is here. People are oppressing you or you're trying to do good, you're trying to do right, and people around are criticizing or trying to stop or thwart the work. You You just keep going. You just keep going. Like Jesus did. And that's what Jesus did in chapter 4. Great chapter on, on uh, the parables which he taught. We don't have time to look at those. I'd love to, but we don't. Then we see some uh, miracles. He calms a storm at the end of chapter 4. In chapter 5, he heals a madman. It's a crazy man who ran around naked in the tombs and he was sit clothed in his right ma- mind when Jesus got finished with him. Chapter 5, we see Jesus healing a woman who had been sick for 12 years and a child 12 years of age who had died. And Jesus was doing these miracles many places, but not every place could He do miracles. Look at chapter 6. In His hometown He couldn't because there were people there who were doubting. He went to Nazareth, which was His hometown. And as He was seeking to do miracles there, the people were doubting. Is, it, is, is this the Jesus boy? Who's this? We've seen him grow up. This can't, he can't be a great prophet. We've seen this Jesus. He, and they were doubting. And if you look in chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and among his own household. He said, A prophet is honor all abroad except in the hometown where they saw him grow up. And he could do no miracle there, chapter 6, verse 5, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. Jesus was shocked, amazed at the fact that they did not have faith, amazed their lack of faith. And this is a theme even through all of Mark as well, is, is not only the lack of faith from the religious leaders, because they didn't believe Jesus, they're thwarting Him, not only the lack of faith from His hometown, Nazareth, but also the lack of faith even among His disciples. And this is where it's encouraging for us, because even they had little faith. In the middle of chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 people. He took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he, he prayed to heaven, gave thanks, distributed to disciples, and 5,000 people were fed. It's a lot of, a lot of people. And uh, Mark is very clear to make sure that you know that they were all satisfied in chapter 6, verse 42. And that they picked up way more even than they started with. Twelve full baskets. Made sure, 40, verse 44, there were 5,000 men who ate could have been more. Could have been some women and some children. We don't exactly know. A short time later, we see Jesus. We see the, the Jesus sending his disciples away on a boat, storm, the straining at the oars, and Jesus comes walking on the water. It's pretty astonishing. And in chapter six, verse fifty-one, we read this. Verse fifty: Take courage, as I do not be afraid. And then he got in the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. The fact that Jesus walked across the water, the fact that he got in the boat, and the fact that the wind stopped. They were shocked. And Jesus said, it's because of your lack of faith. Right? Mark's commentary here is, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. The implication is this. If he could feed 5,000 people with two fish and a couple of loaves of bread, he can walk on water. Because this guy's a little bit different than anybody else you've experienced You shouldn't be too astonished of these things that took place. But they were astonished. And such is the nature of true faith. Such is the nature of faith. It's elusive. 
those who saw the miracles had a difficult time fully believing and grasping what was going on. In chapter 8, same thing. We see 4,000 people fed. Jesus said, I have compassion on the people, verse 2. Chapter 8, verse 2. Because they have remained with me now for three days, have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. So again, moved by compassion for the people who are starved and hungry. And so he, this time, took seven loaves, people of bread. He prayed, thanked the Lord, and fed 4,000 people with the bread. Following this, Jesus and his disciples found themselves in a boat with only one loaf. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread. Here Jesus is with the disciples. The disciples have forgotten to take bread. And they say, oh no, we're going to go hungry. And they did not have more than one loaf of bread with them. And he was giving out orders to them, saying, Watch out, but we're the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herod of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this. And look what Jesus said. Here's the littleness of the faith of the disciples who had seen Jesus feed many and heal many. They still doubted. Why do you disciples discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the five thousand? How many baskets full of baskets you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And he, they said to him, seven. And then he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? I'm the Messiah. I'm God. I can do these things, so trust me. But the disciples had little, little faith. All these disciples needed to do if they wanted bread was ask Jesus, say, Jesus, um, you know, we only have half a loaf of bread here. You fed five thousand. You think he could feed twelve? I think he could feed twelve. But their lack of faith is mind-boggling. How they how they couldn't compute these two. I mean, it's not like Jesus did it once and all the power. Jesus did it twice, five thousand, four thousand. But it's also encouraging their lack of faith because if God can use people like that, He can use people like us who find doubting so real in our lives. Listen, when experiencing seasons of doubt in your life, go to the disciples and be encouraged by the fact that they who saw Jesus, touched Him, saw His miracles, had some trouble believing as well. Well, it's right here. I want to make a transition to my second point. Here we see Jesus the servant serving, feeding, helping, healing, teaching, all these kind of things. And now we see Jesus, second point, Jesus the Savior. Jesus the servant, Jesus the Savior. And this really begins in chapter 8, verse 31. It's the, it's the turning point in all the Gospel. Chapter 3, verse 6, set up the main conflict. This is the turning point. And He began to teach them. That's why it's a turning point, because He was beginning to teach them. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them these things for a reason. Because Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. You look back there in verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. Peter said, And Jesus said, that's exactly right. And now I'm going to tell you, since I'm the Christ, let me tell you what's going to happen to me. And that was verse 31. He says, I'm going to suffer lots of things. The chief priests are going to reject me. 
they're going to kill me. And then I will rise again after three days. And I love what verse 32 says. He was stating the matter plainly. In other words, he's saying, read my lips. I'm going to be rejected, going to suffer, going to die, going to raise. Do you understand? In, uh, in our household, we have been watching Sesame Street in recent days. And uh, one of the things we've been watching is Grover. And what Grover does is this skit called Near and Far. I mean, kids, you ever seen this? And he goes, this is near. And then he says, this is far. And he runs all the way back here. He says, this is far. He runs all the way back up and he says, this is near. And he goes, this is far. And he comes up and he says, he says, do you understand? You don't understand. Well, here's near. And here's far. He comes up again. Near, you understand? You don't understand. And he goes back and he back and forth, back and forth, and finally he ah, and he just falls over because they didn't understand. Well, it's a little bit like Peter here. He's stating the matter plainly. Do you understand? And Peter understood, and he didn't like it. Later we'll see them not even understanding. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He understood. He said, "This this is bad news." Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you are the political, political ruler and political savior for us. We don't need you to die. In fact, we don't know what, what exactly Peter said, but we can kind of guess he said, said this, Jesus, no, you've got a bad plan. If you, if you die, our plans will be shattered. Because we've got big plans for you because you're going to be the king and you're going to be the, the sovereign one. And you can't let this happen to you because we've got these big plans. And... Then in verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter, and we know his words. Peter said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. In other words, Peter, your plan is of the devil. My plan's on God, from God, so set your heart on God's plan and not the devil's plan. If you had a choice, whose who's plan are you going to set your heart on? God's plan or man's plan? God's plan, of course. But he didn't see clearly that he... He didn't understand. And so Jesus had to say it again. Chapter 9, verse 31. It's almost exactly the same as chapter 8, verse 31. He was teaching His disciples and was telling them. And though it's only recorded here in 8.31 and 9.31, perhaps it's even more. He's saying, okay, the Son of Man is to be delivered up into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Do you understand? Verse 32. But they did not understand the statement. Again and again, Jesus is trying to... You know, here's what's interesting, I think, about... I think the reason they didn't understand is because they didn't believe. That's with most things in the Bible. Probably the reason we don't understand them is because we don't believe them. That's why faith is necessary to understanding the Bible. But since they didn't understand, he pulled the grover and he did it again. And maybe he was getting winded by this time. In chapter 10, verse 33. Actually, start in verse 32. So it's 831, 931, 1032, 33 and 34. So it's almost the same, almost one chapter apart. Again, they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful 
And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. 10 verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. In fact, we can see it. There we are. We're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Do you understand? You know, this is some of the most clearest, most straightforward. There's no complex grammar here. It's not like there's subordinate clauses. It's like, here's what's going to happen. You guys ready? Here. We're going to Jerusalem. Check. We're going to be delivered to religious leaders. Condemned to death, mocked, spit upon, scourged, killed, and rise three days later. You got it? What's amazing here is Jesus knew the future. He knew what he was going to face. He was going up to Jerusalem. And the amazing thing about this is in verse 32 it says that he's leading the way. Jesus has a skip in his step. He's walking on ahead of them. Disciples were lagging behind. Saying, come on guys, we're going to Jerusalem. They're like, I know what you said is Jerusalem. Why are you so... Why, why are you going up there so quickly, Jesus? This is like your death march. I think it's because Jesus knew the future. He knew it was taking place. He had a purpose behind his death. Chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that as he died, it would be a ransom death. It would be a death that would pay the payment for sins. And that's why he knew he could go up. That's why he could lead. Is because he knew the purpose in his life was to save well, we come now to chapter 11 and we find him entering into Jerusalem. And from chapter 11 through chapter 16, it's about a week's worth of time. And Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, this wasn't just that he rode in incognito. He, he was riding on this donkey and the disciples were whooping it up a little bit. Everybody was excited. Here's your king, Zechariah 9.9, coming to you on a donkey. Everyone was praising God. Hosanna! Verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hebrew for Hoshiana. Save us now. Save us now. He's the one coming in and he is going to be the Savior. They want a political redeemer. But they wanted a, they want a political redeemer. Jesus is going to redeem them, but a little bit differently. But they were excited. Here's this king. He's coming in. Jesus then did some things. He cast out the money chambers from the, the temple, did some other things. But Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem during the day, during the night, because he may have been killed prematurely. But instead, as it says in verse 19, he'd go out of the city. We know that he stayed in Bethany in the evenings. Jerusalem a day, Bethany, which is right over the hump of uh, the Mount of Olives, just right on the other side in the evenings. And what was going to happen is told in the parable in chapter 12. I just want to read this for you. Chapter 12, verse 1, he began to speak with them in a parables. He's speaking to all the religious leaders, everyone. He says, A man planted a, guard, a vineyard and put a wall all around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now this is a story, it's a picture of Israel. God cared for Israel. He loved Israel. He planted a vineyard. He cared for them. He, he fenced them around. He dug the well. He provided them with water, built a tower, protected it, and then gave it into the hands of His prophets, the vine growers. 
At the harvest time, verse 2, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vine from the vine growers. This is Israel. Got the vine growers. They're there. Actually, it's the prophets that are coming. The vine growers took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. They rejected the prophet who came. And again, verse 4, he sent them another slave, right? Another prophet's going to come to Israel. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Rejected another prophet. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. So, so here's the idea. Israel, God has cared for them, and there they are to take care of the vineyard and sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they rejected and rejected and rejected and were hard. Finally, he said, I don't have any more slaves to send, but I do have my son. I'll send my son. Verse 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. And this is Jesus coming, right? But the vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus knew that he was going to be killed. Jesus knew that Israel didn't want him. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Right? In other words, he's going to destroy Israel. He's going to scatter them abroad. He's going to bring the sun to many other people is what takes place. Have you not read in the Scriptures, and they so quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone, the chief stone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here, you've got to catch this, is telling the future of what's going to take place. You've rejected all the prophets, you're going to reject the Son too. Because that's what's been prophesied in Scripture. The stone which the builders ought not to have rejected, this thing became the very cornerstone. And that is Jesus. The rejected one has become the very cross and center of all of our faith. The cornerstone. And God did it. came about from the Lord. It's marvelous. We're going to see God orchestrating all the events surrounding His death. And the people understood. Do you understand? And they said, yes, we understand. Verse 12. And they were seeking to seize Him. We don't like your teaching, Grover. We're going to seize you. That's what they said. And yet they feared the people, for they understood He spoke a parable against them. So they left and went away. They understood this parable was quite clearly against them. They tried to trap Him. Mark 12 was filled with other traps. But Jesus answered their question, uh, avoiding the, the traps so much so that in the end of verse 34 it says that no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They tried to get him the questioning route. That didn't work. So they're going to try to go a different way. Chapter 13, Jesus is off and away teaching about things to come with his disciples. And then here's the different way. Chapter 14. Now the Passover, 14 verse 1, and the unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking out a season by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of people. Now this is like one of the most hilarious verses in all the Bible. is because since chapter 3, verse 6, they've been wanting to kill Jesus. They've been wanting to seize Him. They've been trying to trap Him. They can't do it. And finally when it comes down to the Passion Week, they say, yeah, but, but not during the Passion Week because we might have a riot among the people. <laughs> and when they're trying to seize Him, God protected Jesus. And when they're trying not to seize Him, God says you're going to take him now. Just an ironic twist there. And God delivered Jesus in their hands by hands of Judas Iscariot, verse 10. 
unbeknownst to the scribes and the Pharisees, somewhat one of the traitors, one of the insiders, Judas Iscariot, was one of the twelve. He went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. He began seeking how to betray him at an opportune plan, opportune time. So, so the plan of the, the chief priests to seize him, they didn't want to do it. But then here comes Judas. They said, okay, and Judas is going to set the whole stage for them. It's going to be Passion Week. It's going to be during, um, during the Passover celebration. And then after Judas had agreed with this, then Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper. Again, prophetically anticipating his death. He says in chapter 14, verse 22, he says, Take, this is my body. And this is what we'll do at the end of my message today. We will celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. Just, just doing what Jesus said. Just take bread and the fruit of the vine. Eat the bread, that's my body. Drink the cup, which is my blood. Right? Taste it, feel it. It is the life of Christ. As a reminder. But we'll come back to that. i got some more insight on that. Then we find Jesus in Gethsemane. Beginning in verse 32 and, and following, He's anticipating His death. And one of the things that's shocking here is that it says in verse 34 that it's, my soul, He said, is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And it says in verse 36, 35, that He fell to the ground and prayed. And it says in Hebrews... This is chapter 5, verse 7. That he offered up loud crying with tears to the one able to save him from death. He was crying loudly, God, Abba, Father, let this pass. Like, he'd been saying it was going to happen. And, and now, right, when it comes time, he's saying, let it pass if possible. And, and almost you can charge Jesus with being cowardly at this point. There are many people down through the history who have who stood right up until their death. Many of the French aristocrats were beheaded and they were, they were solid, composed until their death. Stephen the martyr was composed right until his death, but Jesus, it looks like he's becoming undone. I mean, here's the man who feared nobody, stood against the whole religious establishment of his day. Why is he so weak in his death? I think he's weak in his death because he feared the wrath of God upon his soul. I mean, anybody who dies in this life, they just die. But Jesus was going to die and bear the wrath of God. I think that's what caused him to be so undone. I think it gives you a little hint about how terrible his death was. And he could have run, but he prayed several times. In verse 41, he comes back to his disciples. They're sleeping. He says, it's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. He says, I see this crowd coming. They're up there. Yep, yep, it's time for the Son of Man to be. Hey, guys, get up because they're going to arrest me. Why don't you see this? This is going to have some action. You don't want to miss this. Get up. Let's be going. Verse 42, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 45, we see that Judas kissed him. The ultimate betrayal. Betray a friend with a kiss. And Mark then continues to tell the fulfillment of the words of Jesus. He was delivered into the hands of the chief priests. He was rejected by the elders and chief priests. He was condemned to death. He was handed over to the Gentiles to see that. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was scourged. And then he was killed. If you look in chapter 15, verse 20, it's amazing. After they'd mocked him, they put a purple robe took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. 
No gory details of his death because anybody at that time knew what a crucified person was like. They knew the death. They'd seen People were crucified publicly so you could see how bad a crime it would be to commit against the Roman government so as to prevent crime. They knew what it was. All had Mark had to do, writing these people, is just say that he, they went out to crucify him. We get an insight of what took place, why Jesus was so, so fearful at verse 34. Jesus upon the cross, the ninth hour, so that is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because the day starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. He cried out in a loud voice in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, my God, my God, lama, why? Why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus feared in the garden. In the garden. This is the moment when God would abandon God. Try to understand that. It's hard to understand it. But God abandoned God. And at that moment, Jesus took upon Himself our sin. It's the greatest moment of history. It's when Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And He knew it was going to happen. It happened just as He said. And the rest of the things happened just like He said. He was buried. Verse 37 he died, verse 37 rather. He was buried, verse 46. And the good news is this. He rose from the dead. The disciples enter the tomb. And verse chapter 16, verse 6, uh, a young man in white, maybe an angel, said, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter... He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he has told you. Everything Jesus said, handed over the chief priests, spit upon, mocked, scourged, beaten, put to death, buried, and rise again. And his raising again shows he's got power over death, and that we who believe in him will likewise conquer death. Our sins will be wiped away, just believing and trusting in him. That's the life of Jesus. Hope my prayers are answered that comes refreshing to your soul this morning. Just, just walking through the Gospel of Mark. I have one short story to tell. And then we'll pray. And then uh, we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. So let me tell the story. <clears throat> it's like the life of Jesus, but kind of pulled back. Once before time, there was a great, honorable, wise, and benevolent king who had a son he loved immensely. My son, the king said, I know that you are happy in my presence and that together we share more joy than has ever been or ever will be known by any other. We are perfectly content in our companionship with each other and with our servants, but I would like you to know the joy of being a husband to a bride. I've chosen a bride for you and will present her to you as my gift of love for you. Will you have the bride I have chosen? <clears throat> yes, father, the son replied. I would delight to share our joy and love with a bride. If it pleases you, I'm willing to go and get this bride and bring her back here to our majestic palace to celebrate our marriage. I'm delighted to think how your honor and greatness will be displayed to her. I am joyously contemplating the sound of your great name being praised in our marriage celebration. My dear son, I will indeed send you to get her, but the father proceeded gravely. The bride I have chosen for you is our enemy. Right now she is a rebel against us, son, and she hates us. She has transgressed our holy laws and is awaiting execution. 
She is not beautiful or loving yet. But we will cleanse and purify her and dress her in garments that befit a queen. Because of my great power and love, she will be gloriously transformed when I'm finished with her. She will be the delight of our eyes and will bear our resemblance in her heart. But she is presently a slave in the kingdom of the hateful one. And she loves it there. She's a traitor and despises us. Also, if you go and get her, you will have to pay the penalty for her offenses. You know that I cannot make her ours unless my righteous laws and judgments have been carried out. Would you bear the judgment that she deserves? Would you uphold our reputation and love this one I have chosen for you? Would you love her so much that you'll be willing to be emptied and become a slave like her and then even humbled to the point of a shameful death in her place? Will you ever carry out all my decrees and laws perfectly and still be punished as an evildoer? How wonderful are your ways, dear Father. Yes, it would be my joy to know that I am pleasing you in this way. When the time is right, I will delight in this your will. Then I will engrave upon the palms the name of your beloved queen for all time. And although your sacrifice will be great, the joy that we'll have when your bride joins us here in our home will make this your ultimate sacrifice worthwhile. Let's pray. And Lord, I would pray that you would give us the joy that was set before you when you endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until your enemies you made a footstool for your feet. The reason, O oh Lord Jesus, we know that you could endure the cross is because of what was set before you and you were looking for the marriage supper of the Lamb when you could enjoy your wedding day with a formal rebel, now the church has become your bride, cleansed by the blood of Christ, robes made white in your blood. And so I would pray, God, as we have looked simply this day at the life of Jesus, and as we have looked looked at Him and seen Him as a, a servant to us, you may realize that's what makes Him so great. He could have demanded service as you do. And yet He modeled servant-like behavior for all of us. Thank You that You served us in the ultimate way by dying upon the cross, taking the wrath that was due us upon Him. As that verse we quote so often says, that You made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become righteous in Your sight. And so God, help us, stir us on. I pray, Lord, as we, as we celebrate this supper of taking the bread and taking the cup, and eating it and drinking it, may it be, be true joy of our heart. I pray we even now we might examine our own hearts, might reflect upon them, that Lord, that we might turn away from every sin, that we might realize that you are, are deserving of our whole self, because you gave your whole self. What more can we do but to take up our cross and to follow you? So may, we find, may you find us today to be repenters, repenting and turning from sin. May you find us today being believers, believing and trusting in the sacrifice of Christ. May you find us this morning being rejoicers, rejoicing at the glories of Jesus at Calvary. Lord, I marvel this morning at how deep the Father's love is for us. I would pray that we'd marvel and reflect upon how deep is the Father's love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, the men, if they are ready, can get up and go over to the the elements over there. Just a, a few word of instructions. Perhaps some of you are visiting with us for the first time. If you're a believer in Christ, boy, celebrate with us. You need to examine yourself to make sure that you you do so believing. But if you're believing, celebrate the supper with us. The men are going to distribute the bread first, and while they deliver. While they distribute the bread, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us. It kind of goes right along with that story that I told. That He would send His only Son to be a sacrifice for us. And just, you know, the aim of this song is really to focus our heart uh, upon Jesus. So as you take the bread, just hold it there. Wait for us all and we will eat it. There's nothing magical about this, nothing mystical about this. But there is something very, very special about this. I think... um, There's a catechism question, the Heidelberg Catechism. So I want to read a question and answer for you. Just to show you a little bit of reason why we're doing this. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 75, says, How does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all His gifts? Here's the answer. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, He gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely His body was offered and broken for me and His blood poured out for me on the cross. And second, as surely as I receive from the hand the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely He nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with His crucified body and poured out blood. In other words, the catechism answers a question about the Lord's Supper. This way, why the Lord's Supper? Well, it's because bread and uh, the fruit of the vine is, is tangible things. They're, they're not icons, they're not idols, we don't bow down to it, but just as we have heard and just as we sometimes see Now we get to smell and taste to remind us again of Jesus. And just as sure as we taste the bread, so sure is our salvation has been broken on the cross. And just as sure as we taste of the juice going down our throats, so sure is the sanctifying work of Jesus in our lives. So may we experience that and commune with Him today. Andy. sing together how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory upon his shoulders a 
ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I can not give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And Mark gives the crucifixion account these words. He Describe the scene. He said Jesus was there in the middle and they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on the left. And then Mark 15 verse 28 says, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Right from Isaiah 53. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. The astonishing thing is that those who were crucified with him were insulting him also. What an amazing thing it was that Jesus was there up on the cross receiving insults. And aren't you glad he didn't come down from the cross and save himself? He didn't save himself so he could save others because that's the message of the gospel, the good news. I've come to save. And it was in the Last Supper when he took bread and we know that he, he broke it and he gave thanks to God and he distributed it among his disciples and he said this simply. He said, take it. This is my body. So let's eat of it together. We can stand amazed looking at the cross. His work is finished for us and we know He bore the wrath and we know the grace today, the grace of our Lord. Sing together before the cross.
Savior's sacrifice paid for all my sin. So in my suffering, I look to the cross again. No need, no want, no trial, no pain can compare to this. The wrath of God once meant for me was all spent on Him. Before the cross, I humbly bow. I place my trust in the Savior. Your finished work captures my gaze. You bore the I know the grace In my darkest hour Your presence is my peace In my days of joy Your grace carries me Jesus, my great high priest one who pleads for me. My heart is filled with faith in you. Here it comes on my knees. Before the cross, I humbly bow. I place my trust in the Savior. Before the cross, I humbly bow, place my trust in the Savior, your finished work captures my gaze, you bore the And continuing on in Mark, we find that when Jesus was about to die, it says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed this last from John. We know this cry was to tell us thy, it is finished. It's accomplished. Everything I purpose to do, I finished here upon the cross. And the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hundreds of yards away, the veil, which... I spoke about in our scripture reading, right? There was the, the outer tabernacle containing the, the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread were out here, but there, there was a veil behind the tabernacle, the second tabernacle, which was a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. And, and there was a, a golden jar holding the man and Aaron's rod that bud and the tables of the covenant were right there in the, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowing was the, the mercy seat. And, and then the writer of the Hebrews says this, the Holy Spirit indicates to us that the entrance into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. 
But when, when Jesus died, the entrance in the holy place was there as the, as the veil was ripped from top to bottom, showing it wasn't a human work, it was a divine work. And the centurion, it says in Mark 15, verse 39, was standing right in front of him. He'd seen many men die before. And the way that Jesus died, he saw the way he breathed his last, the way that Jesus died. He said this, Truly this man was the Son of God. And I say to you, truly He is the Son of God. Let's believe in Him and trust in Him. He, he anticipated His death. He prophesied of His death. He instituted the Lord's Supper so as to show His death. He said this, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Let's drink it in remembrance of Him. Let's drink it together. And Jesus, we are thankful to You for Your Sacrifice on our behalf for us. I pray that we'd never tire of thinking about Him and thinking how He redeemed us, how He helped us, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Lord, I pray that You would stir our spirits again to go from this place afresh, encouraged in Christ, desirous of serving others. That's the great model of Jesus. What He did for us, we need to do for others. We serve others. We need to lay our lives down for others. So I pray you'd help us to do that. We pray and trust these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.